Let me pray one more time, and then we're going to get into the book of Isaiah one more time. Father, uh, we're grateful for all that you have provided for us. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to open up your, your scriptures because you have communicated to us. You have revealed yourself to us. And I pray, Father, that um, in, in some way, Father, through your Holy Spirit, you will arouse within us um, or stir within us um, a desire to um, connect with you, to engage with you, with our, our minds, our heart, our spirit, Father, this morning in your word. Reveal yourself to us. And then, Father, in that process of revealing yourself to us, transform us. Your word says that we're not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit will just take charge and take over and renew our minds. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, again, happy Mother's Day. And your family, your families honor you, moms, uh, because they know you have one of the toughest jobs in the world. Someone once said that motherhood is an experiment and how long the body can function without adequate sleep and nourishment, fueled only by adrenaline, caffeine, and baby smiles. So thank you very much for being moms. Uh, we love you for it. We appreciate you. Even if on rare occasions, and, you know, I, I realize you come to church, you've got your pious face on, but even if on rare occasions you may think or even say such things like, I love spending time with my children except when they're sick, hungry, tired, and annoying. <laughs> Maybe in a weak moment that was the thought. Or the time when your daughter wanted to have a Cinderella-themed birthday party. You know, little princesses, Cinderella-themed birthday party. And the thought crossed your mind, a Cinderella birthday party. I'm sure I'll have all your little friends over to clean my house. <laughs> it just it was kind of a weak moment, but uh, it crossed your mind and then, then immediately left it. Or when you caught that little guy of yours out in the backyard eating handfuls of dirt. Little girls have the Cinderella theme party, but it's the little guys that are eating handfuls of dirt. And for one brief moment, you entertain the thought, so I wonder if I still need to feed them lunch. <laughs> you know, a little break in here. Now, look, being a mom is difficult, and there's no doubt about it. It's a challenging, daunting task parenting, just generally. And there's a theological reason for it. Your children are sinners. <laughs> they are born with a sin nature. They are related to spiritual Adam, as the Apostle Paul explains in Romans chapter 5. They are born with this propensity towards self-centeredness, to become a law unto themselves. They are sinfully wired for autonomy. Children don't need to be taught to sin. They come by it quite naturally because they are born with a sin nature. And so the role of moms and certainly dads is to train the children up 
in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The role of grandparents and aunts and uncles and extended family is to come alongside those kids and to admonish them and to teach them and encourage them as it says way back in the book of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Teach your kids about God to love them. Or many years later, as the psalmist wrote in Psalm 78, for he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should teach them to their children and that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell it to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but to keep his commandments. Teach the kids. When we come to the days of the prophet Isaiah, the book that we have been studying, the 8th century B.C., as we have seen in these early chapters of Isaiah, something has tragically gone wrong. When Moses wrote those words in Deuteronomy, or the psalmist in Psalm 78 wrote those words, years later, in the days of Isaiah, those words were forgotten. There was a breakdown. Somewhere there was a breakdown in the home, and it wasn't being passed on. And so we read in the opening verses of Isaiah something like this. They, Israel, have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. This is what had happened. Israel had forgotten God, and it wasn't being passed on. Isaiah was living amongst a people who were putting their trust in foreign alliances. They were, they were actually trusting in foreign gods. They were worshiping false gods in hopes that life would go well for them. And as we have studied the book of Isaiah, we've seen that God does not take pleasure when he's forgotten. The passage we want to look at this morning and is a larger passage. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 7 of Isaiah chapter 9, but I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah 9 starting in verse 8. It's a very, we're going to go through most of chapter 10 this morning. It's a very simple passage. God has some judgment to pronounce on Israel, and then he's going to pronounce judgment on the nation that's coming to judge Israel. That's the Assyrians. Today is a passage on judgment as that's a predominant theme in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. Judgment on Israel, judgment on Assyria. Look at verse 8 of chapter 9. The Lord sends a message against Jacob and it falls on Israel and all the people know it, that is Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, asserted in pride and in arrogance of heart. Now this is a message that is being directed towards the northern kingdom of Israel. 
that blue part in the map. A couple hundred years before Isaiah wrote this, the united kingdom under David and Solomon, that kingdom had split in a civil war. Ten of the tribes of Israel went with um, uh, uh, Jeroboam, the final or the last two tribes of Judah and Benjamin stayed with the son of Solomon, Rehoboam. But there was this civil war. Isaiah's words that we're going to read are directed towards this northern kingdom of Israel. Speak these words, he says. These are, this is a burden, a message against Israel, against Ephraim, the inhabitants of Samaria that are asserting in pride and arrogance of heart. They are rebelling against God. And so God says in verse 10, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild, or the people say, the bricks have fallen down, we will rebuild. We will rebuild with smooth stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we'll replace that with cedars. So therefore, verse 11, the Lord raises against them adversaries from reason. He was the king of Aram, or Syria, a neighbor and spurs their enemies on, the Arameans on the east, the Philistines on the west, and they will devour Israel with, with, with gaping jaws. Some of your translations will say with open mouths. In spite of all this, in spite of the coming judgment, in spite of the fact that the Assyrians are coming and, and the enemies around them, they're surrounded and they're going to be pulverized because of their arrogant pride and sin. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away. His hand is still stretched out. In other words, God's punishment isn't over yet. His hand is still stretched out. There's more to come. Look at verse 13. Yet the people do not turn back to him who struck them. They do not seek the Lord of hosts, the sinful heart of Israel. They've turned their back. And so consequently, verse 14 so the Lord cuts off head and tail from Israel, both palm branch and bulrush in a single day. The head, those are the elders, the, the honorable men, the leaders of Israel, the prophets, uh, uh, and the prophet who teaches falsehood, they're, they're the tail. So from the head to the tail. I don't know why he has the preachers being the tail, but anyway, that's, I'll get over it. But um, the head leaders, the prophets and false teachers, God says, I'm going to cut them off. For those, verse 16, who guide this people are leading them astray. Those who are guiding, uh, being guided by them are brought to confusion. Verse 17, therefore the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does he have pity on the orphans and the widows, for every one of them is godless and an evildoer. Every mouth is speaking foolishness. And in spite of all this, in spite of the fact that God is going to cut off the judge, the leaders, and the teachers, and the false prophets, bring judgment, in spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. God is saying, there's more to come. Judgment is going to come even in a more severe way. Look at verse 18. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It even sets the thickets of the forest aflame. In other words, it's overwhelmingly powerful, the wickedness. It's a, it's a raging fire. 
and they roll upward in a column of smoke, verse 19. So what's going to happen? What does God do with the wickedness in people's heart? Verse 19, by the fury of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up and the people are like fuel for the fire. No man spares his brother. They slice off what is in the right hand and yet are still hungry. They eat what is in the left hand, but they are not satisfied. Each of them eats the flesh of his own arm. Look at verse 21. Manassas devours Ephraim. Ephraim, Manasseh. Those are two tribes of the northern kingdom. In other words, he's saying brother is going to fight against brother. Families against family. They're going to, metaphorically speaking, cannibalize themselves. They're going to devour one another. And then they're going to come against Judah, verse 21. In spite of all this, in spite of the fact that Israel is imploding, even at the most basic level of the home, families, in spite of all this, God's not finished. His judgment is going to continue. In all of this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. God's punishment is not over. God deals with sin. And as we have seen, his primary means of bringing this judgment against Israel was that great power of the day, the Assyrians. Nothing seemed to stop the Assyrians. Tiglath-Pileser III and his powerful forces were marching southward, and they were going to destroy everything in its path. Oh, they were grand and powerful and everyone shook in their boots at the thought of the Assyrians coming. And then in chapter 10, God has a word for the Assyrians. Look at verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I send it against godless nations. I commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty, to seize the plunder, to trample them down like mud in the streets. They are quick. Remember this from other passages. They are quick to plunder. They're speedy to the spoil. Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. That was Isaiah's son's name. Call your son Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, which means quick plunder speedy to the spoil. And this is what is being brought up. In fact, Isaiah is probably saying and pronouncing these words. He may have his little son standing by him. Assyria is quick to the plunder, speedy to the spoil. And yet, verse 7, it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy, to cut off many nations. It says, verse 8, are not my princesses all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is Hamath like Arpad? Is Samaria like Damascus? These are cities that were destroyed by the Assyrians. Verse 10, as my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, these are, this is the Assyrians speaking, as my hand has reached the kingdoms of the idols whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem? And her images, just as I've done to Samaria and her idols? Verse 12. So it will be 
Then when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of this arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. I'm going to use you, and then I'm going to smash you, God says to Assyria. Jump down to verse 24. Chapter 10, verse 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, don't fear the Assyrians who strike you with the rod, who lifts up his staff against you the way Egypt did. For in a very little while, verse 25, my indignation against you will be spent and my anger will be directed to their destruction. You know what God is saying. I'm going, to, I'm going to use the Assyrians to judge you, O Judah, but don't be overly faint-hearted because it's not like I've lost control because when I'm done using them, I'm going to smash them. I'm going to destroy them. Verse 26, the Lord of hosts will arouse a scourge against him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb, and his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it up, and he will lift it up the way he did in Egypt. So it will be in that day that his burden will be removed from your shoulders, his yoke, that is the yoke of, of Assyria, from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of fatness. Now, you've got to trust me on this. We'll get to this story down the road in a few weeks of when this is fulfilled. It's an incredible story, what God did. This is simply a prophetic statement that Isaiah is saying. He's telling the Assyrians, you think you're in charge? I'll be getting you too. You arrogant, pompous, haughty nation. Now, there are two important truths in this passage, 9 and chapter 10. Two important truths that are emphasized, and really they're emphasized throughout the book of Isaiah, but they come to, to the surface, I think, very powerfully in chapters 9 and chapter 10. And they are two truths that every mom in raising children, every dad, every parent, Every grandparent who has an influence, every aunt and uncle that has an influence over the next generation need to understand and need to embrace. Here's the first truth. At the root of all sin that occurs the wrath and judgment of a holy God, of a thrice holy God, is an attitude of pride, a self-assertive attitude of the heart that desires independence from God, that wants to live autonomously, wants nothing to do with God's authority in their life. The deepest desire in sinful man's heart is to be master of their own fate, to be captain of their own soul, to be self-guided, self-directed, self-protective, to live in a bubble world that is all about themselves. At the heart of sinful man, at the heart of that little baby that was born yesterday or the day before or tomorrow, is a sinful nature that has as its root, I want what I want. 
pride. What does that look like? What does that look like? Well, so oftentimes we see what it's looked like in the midst of um, difficult situations in life. It shows up in a crisis, typically, in a, in a problem that arises. Monday morning, something happens, okay? Something, whether it's large or small, a, a crisis hits us. A problem that we did not expect shows up at our doorstep. You wake up Monday morning and the, the sink is clogged and, the, and the, the sewer is plugged up and little junior comes down with the flu. And in the midst of all of that, you get a call right then from the bank just saying, you're overdrawn. Problems come in all different shapes and sizes. Or you're called into the front office and your boss explains in the most business-like terms, they are downsizing. And there happens to be no place for you in the new restructuring of the company. You are to immediately not go back to your desk, but to follow the designated person out of the building at this very moment. Unexpected, out of the blue, unforeseen. Or test results come back. The doctor sits down with you and the worst fears are realized. Surgery is needed immediately and months and months of, of treatment or a rehabilitation are required. Now, when problems or crises hit us in the face, how do we respond? How do we respond? Immediately, there's a sense of anxiousness or, or, or worry. Those are the red lights on the dashboard of our life. How do we respond to that? In the heart of every person born in this world is this heart of, of, of sinful pride that says, I will figure this out. I am the master of my destiny. I am the captain of my fate. I will figure this out. I will solve my problem. I will take charge and I will solve it. I don't need you, God. In the heart of sinful man, that's what sin is. It's this hubris, it's this pride that rears its ugly head. Or, for a person who knows Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, the hope is that there is another response to the red lights that show up on the dashboard. Though the, the sinful heart, the propensity is to take that step towards uh, uh, panic and solving the problem, the other response is to take a deep breath and to go to the Lord and to say, but you, O Lord, I need to entrust this to you. It's a humble recognition that, God, you are the one who can solve this for me. You are the one who can be my strength. You are the one who can help me through this. Two responses. We either say, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. Or we can say, move over, God. I've got this covered. 
in the heart of every little boy, little girl that's born in this world is the propensity to say, move over God, I got this covered. This goes back to their first temptation in Genesis chapter 3. This is as old as the Garden of Eden when the serpent came to Eve and said, did, did God say you can't eat of the fruit of the tree? And Eve said, well, we could eat of all the fruit of the tree, but we just can't eat of the fruit of the middle garden because the day we eat of it, we'll die, God says, or, or even if we touch it. And Satan comes and does what? Says, you're not going to die because God knows on the day that you eat of it, you'll be like him knowing good and evil. And Eve, it Flip the switch with Eve and Adam. Being like God, who wouldn't want that? To live autonomous, to be the master of my own life, to be the captain of my own soul, my fate. And Eve saw that desire and she took and she ate and she gave to Adam and his silence, he in his leaderless mode he took an aid as well. Man succumbed to the temptation to live independently of God. Move over God, Adam and Eve said. We'll take it from here. In the heart of every little boy and little girl that's born in this world is the desire to say, move over God, I'll take it from here. To live independently of God. Proverbs 16, 18 reminds us, pride goeth before the fall. And the results were devastating, were they not? Genesis chapter 3, death came. God said, in the day you do it, you will surely die, and death came. Now, in Isaiah, in the 8th century, in chapters 9 and chapter 10, it's like we have a post-mortem report given to us from the, the grand coroner, Isaiah the prophet, as he looks at the death of Israel. Isaiah's writing this report and explains why this devastating judgment has come. And sure enough, at the core of Israel's sin, at the core of Israel's heart, was pride. Self-assertive pride. Self-directed, self-protected, self-reliance. God, I don't need you, move over. Go back to chapter 9, verse 8 again. The Lord sends this message against Jacob. It falls on Israel. All the people know it. Ephraim, the inhabitants of Samaria. What is it? They're asserting in pride and in arrogance of heart. What are they asserting? Look at verse 10. The bricks have fallen down. Well, big deal. We will rebuild with smooth stones. We'll, we'll even, the bricks have fallen, but we're going, to have, we're going to rebuild with even the best, the smooth stones. The sycamore has been cut down. Big deal. We will replace them with something better, with cedars. Arrogant pride. Arrogant pride. It leads Israel to verse 13. This people do not turn back to him who struck them. They do not seek the Lord of hosts. Pride. Look at verse 20 again. They slice off what is in the right hand, but they're still hungry. They eat what is in the left hand, but they're not satisfied. And each of them eats the flesh of his own arm. Manassas against Ephraim. Ephraim against Manassas. And together all against Judah. In other words, it's pride that's causing them, even at the family relationship, brothers against brothers. 
pride is causing this cannibalistic, metaphorically speaking, devouring of one another. Pride does that. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Woe to those who enact evil statutes and to those who constantly record unjust decisions so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights in order that widows may be their spoil and that they may plunder the orphans. It's pride that causes people to turn their back on those who are the most needy. It's pride that says, I look out for number one. If you can't look out for yourself, then watch out. But I'm going to step all over you because I'm looking out for number one. It's the heart of sin. And moms and dads, grandparents, uncles and aunts, those little kids are born with that propensity to live a self-directed, self-focused, self-centered life. It's a sin nature. It's because of pride that God raises up a mighty hand. Verse 4 of chapter 10, nothing remains but to crouch among the captives or fall among the slain. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away. His hand is still stretched out. And God is saying, your pride is leading you to one thing. It's taking you one place or one of two, either into captivity, taken off by the Assyrians, or you die right there in Israel. Captivity or death, that's the end result of a self-centered, self-directed, self-focused life. And it's all over this passage. Assyrians, look at verse 12. We just read this earlier. So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion, he turns and, uh, and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria, the pomp of his haughtiness. For he has said, my, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom I did this. I, I have understanding and I have removed the boundaries of the peoples and plundered their treasures. And like a, a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants. And my hand reached the riches of the peoples like a nest. And as one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth. And there was not one that flapped its wings or opened its beak to chirp. I did all this, said the Assyrians. I'm the captain of my fate. I'm the master of my soul. We are Assyria, and we exert our right however we want. We come to nations, and like abandoned birds' eggs, eggs in a nest, we just reach up and take whatever. We, we, we devour every nation in our path because we're Assyria. And God says in verse 15, is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That'd be like a club wielding those who lift it or, or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. But I say, let me get this straight. I'm using you, but you're asserting yourself in pride like you're getting, doing all at all? Arrogant pride. Pride goes before the fall. Moms and dads, your children are born with a sin nature that has as its root a self-assertive propensity for independence from God. And your primary task as a parent is to teach them to trust a sovereign God. 
and to live obediently under his lordship and control. To live a life of dependency. And it goes against their bent, their nature. You want to know why parenting is so tough these days? You know why, you know why it's tough being a mom today? Well, it's no different than it was with Adam and Eve raising Cain and Abel. It's the age-old issue of indwelling sin and a propensity to live independent of God. Look at verse 20 of chapter 10 because there is another way. Chapter 10, verse 20, Now it will come about in that day that the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped... After the Assyrian hordes have come, there will be a remnant that will be spared, Shir Jashuv. That was Isaiah's other little son's name. So we've seen Meir Shalahashbaz, quick to the plunder, speedy to the spoil, and now Shir Jashuv, a remnant of Israel, will return. They've escaped, and they will never again rely on the one who struck them, but they will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. God is going to work in the heart of these chosen people. And the day will come, he says, after all the work of judgment, they will stand back and say, why did we miss this? And they will never again rely on other foreign alliances or foreign gods. He says, they, and the word, by the way, to trust or rely on is a wonderful word. It literally means to lean upon, to put your weight upon something. It's, it's like leaning upon uh, some other object. You put all your full weight, and you're going to lean upon them. That's the opposite of pride, which leads me to a second key truth from this passage. And that is that God is the only sovereign Lord who alone is worthy to be trusted and relied upon, leaned upon. And moms and dads, grandparents, uncles and aunts, anyone with an influence over children, the most important thing you can do for your kids, for those little ones, is teach them that there is a sovereign God a holy, holy God, a sovereign Lord who alone is worthy to be leaned upon and trusted. Let's not miss one of the most prominent themes in chapters 9 and chapter 10 and really throughout, again, the whole book of Isaiah. Prominent theme that's running throughout this entire book, and that is that God is the sovereign king and control of all things. Just real quickly, Chapter 9, verse 11. The Lord raises against them adversaries from reason and spurs their enemies on. Who does that? Who raises the enemies of reason? Who raises up the Assyrian powers? God did. God raises them up. Or verse 13 and 14. Yet the people do not turn back to him who struck them. Who struck them? God did. Nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cuts off head and the tail from Israel. Who brings the judgment? God does. Verse 17, therefore, the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does he have pity on their orphans and their widows, for every one of them is godless and an evildoer. 
and by the fury of the Lord of hosts. The land then is burned up, and the people are like fuel for the fire. Who burns up the land? Who brings judgment? God does. Look at chapter 10, verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. That's all you are, Assyria. You're just an instrument in my hand, and I'm wielding it. Because Jehovah God is the sovereign Lord of all. And there is no nation on this earth Apart from when God says, go, you go, stop, you stop. He's sovereign. He's in charge. I send it against a godless nation and commission it in my, against my people in fury, fury. Look at verse 12. So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, then he'll say, I'm going to punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria. After he uses Assyria to do his bidding of judgment against Jerusalem, he now says, now I'm going to get you because he's in charge. Well, we just saw this in verse 15. Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? Assyria, you're just an instrument in my hand. Verse 23, for a complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord God of hosts will execute it in the midst of the whole land. A fixed decisive determination. It's decreed by God. He is sovereign, he is holy, and he does whatever he pleases. Moms and dads, you need to teach your kids what Psalm 115 verse 3 says. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. He's God. And we're not and yet, from the very beginning of time, as Satan said to Eve, you want to be like God? Yeah. And she took of the fruit and gave to her husband. And every person, you and me included, born into this world, is born with a propensity to live independent of God, the sovereign king of kings and Lord of lords. Parents, train and teach your kids. Grandparents, influence your, your grandkids. Aunts and uncles, influence the next generation with the truth that there is one sovereign in this universe. And we better align our life under him. There's only one king now, by the way, that does not mean that man isn't accountable for his choices or his actions. Don't have time to develop this. But God says, I'm going to use Assyria. They're a rod in my hand. They're a staff of my indignation. And oh, by the way, I'm going to use you, and then I'm going to judge you. Well, what, yeah, but I was just you know, you know, a pawn in your hand. This is one of those antinomies of what seems to be irreconcilable, but both are taught in the Scripture. God is sovereign over His universe, yet man is fully accountable for our heart before Him. Moms and dads, your children need to understand 
that there's a propensity within them to live independently of God, and we have to train them and teach them and direct them to trust Him as their Savior. Because the work of redemption takes place. That work of, of enabling power to overcome sin happens at the moment of faith in Jesus Christ. The influence of parents, of grandparents, of aunts and uncles over that next generation, point them to Jesus. And then point them to a sovereign God so that they can order everything of their life under him, which means, should I go to this school? Oh, sovereign Lord, what do you want from my life? Should I, should I marry that person? Oh, sovereign Lord of my life, what do you want from me? Should I take this job? Oh, sovereign Lord of all, is this what you want for my life? Parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, teach your children that there is one sovereign Lord of all. One. And teach them to bow their knee before him. And sadly, it's not happening today like it ought to happen. And it must have broken the heart of God as he looked at his people in the 8th century B.C. And he had told them, teach them my ways. When you stand up, when you walk, Deuteronomy 6, tell the next generation, so they'll tell the next generation to put their confidence in God because there's only one sovereign. And then his heart is broken as he brings judgment. One final thing. Moms and dads, teach your kids that there's an almighty and sovereign God in heaven who's a God of grace and mercy and compassion. A truth that we'll see next week as we get into chapter 11. In the midst of executing his, his fierce wrath and judgment, chapter 11 begins by saying, a shoot from Jesse springs up. A twig, after the, the, the forest is chopped down in judgment, a, a twig of hope, of grace, of mercy comes up. Because it was the Emmanuel child that would come. And Isaiah will unpack that in chapter 53 as he explains it's this Emmanuel child who came to die and pay the penalty for our sins and to rise again in triumph. Teach your kids about sin. Teach your kids about a sovereign God of justice. And teach your kids about a, a sovereign God who is of grace and mercy and compassion and who loves us with an everlasting love. Moms and dads, we want to assist that more than maybe we ever have before here at Fellowship Bible Church through our home center. In the fall, in September, we're going to have a, a, a conference, an emphasis on just practical tools of, of how to be wise in the use of digital media today. Just very practical things we want to inf input into the lives of families today. Uh, next spring in April, we're going to have Dr. Ted Tripp here and his wife. He's written a book called Shepherding a Child's Heart. We've used it for years here at Fellowship Bible Church, and they're going to come, and we're going to, um, uh, again, empower parents. Um, the Faith Path kits that we are giving out. 
If you haven't gotten one, go to the home center and get one. 275 children, almost 300 kids, uh, families have signed up for that already. We want to we resource you because the next generation is at risk. And we're growing up in a godless society. And moms and dads, we can't impart what we don't possess. And so our responsibility is to be people who lean upon the Lord. You lean into Jesus every day, and your kids and grandkids will see that. And more is caught than taught. Let's pray. Father, it's like every day, Lord, we need a fresh vision of who you are because we're so prone to forget, so prone to allow that propensity within us to, to rear its ugly head and we live independent of you to solve our own problems. And that gets imprinted on that next generation. And we live in a culture that prides itself in pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Figure it out, son. Take charge, young woman. Father, we need constant reminders that you alone are the sovereign. And to the degree that we're living our life in humble submission before you, that's when we find life and experience joy. Give us a fresh vision always, Father, of who you are. In Christ's name I pray, amen.